The following audio is from Downtown Church, a kingdom-focused, gospel-centered, multi-ethnic, multi-class ministry in Memphis, Tennessee. For more information, please visit downtownchurch.com. Good morning, church. Once again, I want to take advantage of the fact that I'm not technically an employee here, so you can't technically fire me. To start out by doing something weird that we don't normally do in church, uh, I want to start out by playing a game. So I want you to turn slightly towards someone next to you, just slightly in your seat, okay? And I've got some words on the screen, okay? I'm going to give you some words. There they are. Can you see them? Can you see these words? Okay, using just these words as they're written, just these words as they're written and no other words, I want you to tell the person next to you what your plans are for after church. Go. All right, you got it? Okay, good, good. Okay, one more. It's just one more, one more part of this game. One more part of this game. Using these exact same words. All right, I know you're having fun. Back up here, right? Okay, using just these words and no others, exactly how they're written, stay turned towards the person, and I want you to describe and explain your relationship with your mother to the person next to you. Go. Okay, okay, okay. I, I can't hear what you're saying because I'm way up here, but let me make an educated guess. Let me make an educated guess. You had an easier time with the first one where I'm going to lunch, I go food, than you did with your mom. Describe it as your mom. I mean, you can say, mom is good. You can say, mom is bad. You can even say, mom is good and bad. But I'm guessing that that doesn't quite capture the complexity of your relationship with your mother. Okay. Now these words, there's about 30 words up here, these are drawn from some of the first 100 words that children learn in infancy. Okay. These are good words. These are real English words. We can do real important things. We can say things with these real English words. We can't say some things without these real English words. But if it were all the words that we had, if we only had these words, if we stayed with just these, we would have a great difficulty saying some things that need to be said. If infants don't add vocabulary and grammar beyond this, they may be able to say, mom is good, I want food, which is cute when you're three, but they're gonna have a, hot, a lot harder time at a job interview. Imagine going on a date with just these words, right? Imagine trying to describe what was most important to you with just these words. We need different words. That's part of growing up. We add words. We add vocabulary. We build out our grammar so that we can say what we need to say in the world that we actually live in. And one thing that happens as kids gain words and grammar and vocabulary is that they also gain feelings. Because we learn to feel what we feel through trying to say what we feel. By gaining vocabulary big enough to describe the complexity of our emotions. This week, my kids went back to school, and so we learned a new word, bittersweet. Right? If all you know is good and bad, you don't actually know how to describe or even feel what it feels like to be on the way to school and feel afraid and excited. Maturity requires us to add words so that we can say and feel what needs to be said and what needs to be felt. Now, what I want to suggest to you this morning as we begin is two things. One, the Psalms give us the authoritative language for talking to God. What it means to be a Christian is in part to learn to speak psalm language, psalmese, if you like, 
to God. And secondly, that most of us speak that language at the level of a three-year-old. We got some of the words. We can say a few of the things, but we're missing a lot of vocab. Our basic grasp of Psalmy's grammar is not very sound. And because of that, we can't say what needs to be said to God, and we can't feel what needs to be felt in relationship to God. And we're like three-year-olds living in a 35-year-old or a 55-year-old or a 75-year-old world. And so we need to grow up to become fluent, to add vocab in speaking psalm language to God. And this morning, I want to suggest to you that Psalm 44 is going to help us do it. So pull out your Bibles if you got them. Open up to Psalm 44. And we're talking about at least three things that Psalm 44 can do. Three, three ways that Psalm 44 can help us become fluent in psalm language. And the first thing we see is that Psalm 44 gives us words to wrestle with and rage at God. Psalm 44 gives us grammar and vocabulary to wrestle with and rage at God. You see, the first seven verses give us vocabulary and language that we are familiar with. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the days of old. The first seven verses is language and vocab we're familiar with. Thank you, Lord, for your victory in the past. The first seven verses give us vocabulary and grammar we are familiar with. We praise you, Lord, for the victory that you are giving us in the present, that you are our king and you are our God. This is language that we're familiar with. But in the second half of the psalm, in verse 9, there's a shift. And this one horrifying preposition, but. But now you have rejected us and disgraced us and have not gone out with our armies. And if the first seven or eight verses of the psalm are building a tower of praise with blocks, like in the game of Jenga, the next 15 verses pull out every one of those blocks and dashes the tower of praise and leaves us with only protests. In the past, the first half of the psalm says, Yahweh defeated our enemies, verse 2. Now, Yahweh has made us retreat before our enemies, verse 10. In the past, Yahweh humiliated those who sought to oppress us, but now he has made us a taunt and a derision and a scorn and a byword, and he's covered our faces with shame. In the past, the psalm says, God delivered us from slavery, but now, verse 12, he has sold us into slavery at no high price and gained nothing from the sale. If this dashing of the Tower of Praise disturbs us, what comes next is even more disturbing. Because in verse 17 through 22, the prayer of Psalm 44 turns up the heat. None of this, says the prayer of Psalm 44, is on us. This has not happened because we turned away from your covenant. This has not happened because we've broken your law. This has not happened because we have turned to other gods. You have done this on your own for no reason at all that we can see. On your account, we are like sheep before the slaughter. If this is a relationship, the psalmist prays, you're the one walking out. In verse 23, the psalmist finally moves in a direction that we expect, the cry for help. But even here, he takes the disrespect towards God to a new level. Awake yourself. Why, O oh Lord, do you sleep? 
Now let me remind you, the Bible is filled with reminders that God does not sleep. In fact, you call God asleep if you want to make fun of somebody else's God. When Elijah's on Mark Carmel and he wants to make fun of false gods, he says, is your God asleep? That's the way you despise the idols. And yet here the psalmist says, why are you asleep at the wheel? Wake up. Rouse yourself. Do not forget us forever. This is not a language that we are familiar with. This is not a part of our grammar. We have not learned this vocabulary. In fact, we have studiously tried to avoid it. Consider, we say praises go up, blessings come down. The psalmist says praises have gone up, shame and humiliation and defeat have gone down. We say, won't he do it? The psalm says he hasn't. He should have by now. And he shows no signs of doing so. When we go to counsel people who are suffering, we tell them, God has a wonderful plan for your life. Or maybe we pick up the beautiful scripture, all things work together for the good of those who love him. This psalm says, everything is going poorly and it's your fault. Everything is not working out for my good because you're at the wheel or because you're asleep at the wheel. When we go to sing, we studiously avoid sadness. We sing songs of praise. We sing songs of trust. We sing songs of request. We never sing songs of complaint. We rarely sing songs of rage. And this is true. I mean, I could literally bring up a bajillion examples of this. And it would be easy to make fun of some of the more recent songs, some of the less theologically sound songs. It would be easy to trot out some stuff that we can all bash together. But this tendency is even in our very favorite hymns, hymns I have loved from my childhood. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot you have taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. And then here, in the inspired word of God, the language lesson that teaches God's people how to talk to him, we are precisely not taught to say, it is well with my soul. But rather, it is not well with my soul. It is wrong with my soul. And it's wrong with my soul because of you. We have studiously sung and counseled and preached and prayed in language that does not include this grammar, that ignores this vocabulary, that doesn't know how to speak these sentences. In fact, part of the reason why we ignore the vocabulary and the grammar of Psalm 44 is because it feels like it's inappropriate. I can feel that you're uncomfortable. I can feel that you're even more uncomfortable than when I had pictures of dead chickens up here a few weeks ago. Right? <laughs> I can, I can sense your discomfort. I sensed my discomfort this morning as I was praying. I'm uncomfortable. We don't think this is how good Christians should talk. Or if we do, maybe this is a psalm for immature Christians, you know? And so we pray and meditate and we learn the psalm language like, Lord, your love reaches to the heavens and your faithfulness to the skies. And we meditate on psalm passages like, Lord, you are good and your mercies endure forever. And yes, we look to God and we say with the psalmist, be still my soul, my soul is quieted within me. And we learn those sentences and that vocab. And those are good sentences. And that's real vocab. We need those words. But they aren't the only words we need. And we studiously avoid the other half of the language that God has given us. 
with which to speak to him. See, the problem is all those things we say are true, but they're not the whole truth. And a whole truth, if it's not the whole truth, then it's a half truth, and a half truth becomes the same thing as a lie. If all we've got is the half truths, the half the vocab, we end up with a whole lie. If my wife were to tell you, Michael is a good husband and father, that would be a true sentence. But if my wife never had language to say that sometimes when Michael's not on top of his anxiety, he takes it out on us. If my wife never has words to say, sometimes Michael is manipulative. Sometimes Michael undermines my authority in front of our children. Sometimes Michael's present in the body, but absent spirit. If my wife never has words to say that, the sentence, Michael's a good dad and father, which could be true, becomes a lie. Because the whole story is not being told. And if she's not allowed to say those words and feel those feelings, our relationship becomes false. Growing up in the faith, full maturity, full maturity requires not that we ignore Psalm 44 or somehow get past it, but rather that we learn to speak the full language of the faith. And this is, in fact, what Scripture itself demands. So we, while we mutter pious things like, you know, you can't, ask, you can't question God, you shouldn't complain to God, you shouldn't complain, you know, the Bible is full of experiences and pictures of us just doing just that. I mean, the story that like, has hung in my head as I prepared for this sermon is the story of Jacob. It's one of the strangest stories in the Bible. You know, he's freaking out because he's about to meet this guy that he screwed over earlier in his life, his brother Esau. And he's laying awake at night wondering what the next day is going to hold. And Scripture tells us a man comes and wrestles with him. And the end of the story is that this man turns out to be God. God comes and wrestles with Jacob all night long. And when morning comes... God touches Jacob's hip and wrenches it out of socket and gives him a limp that he will limp for the rest of his life. And then says, let me go. And Jacob says, no, I will not let you go. I'm not letting go unless you bless me. And the man asked him, what is your name? And he answered, Jacob. And then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel. Because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. This is the place where we learn the name Israel, which is the name for the people of God. And God gives it to Jacob. God says, this is how, this is what it will be. This is your new identity. This is the identity of the people of faith. You have wrestled with God and overcome. You walk away with a limp, perhaps, but you have wrestled with God. What it means, right here, in like the first, what is that, chapter 30? In the first... It's only 32 chapters in, you know, week eight of your year-long study of the Bible. You get here and you find out what it means to be the people of God is to wrestle with him. And the whole rest of the story explains this. We see Abraham saying, no, 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 God, you are just. That means you can't smite innocent people in Sodom and Gomorrah. We see Moses on the mountain arguing with God. You can't destroy these people. That's not in keeping with your character. We see Job and his friends. And for like 900 chapters, his friends quote the book of Proverbs. And Job cusses and swears and says every bad thing about God you can imagine. And God shows up on the scene and says, it's Job with his rage, not the friends with their Proverbs, who've spoken of God as his right. And then we get the Psalms, which teach us the language to talk to God. And four out of ten of them are Psalms of complaint and lament, and suffering, and pain. And don't forget, people, 
These aren't inspired lecture notes. These are inspired prayers. This is the ridiculous, unbelievable thing that we bear witness to when we say all Scripture is God-breathed. That part of what God breathes was the words with which to accuse him. That part of what God knew it would mean to be a people whose identity was to wrestle with him is that sometimes we would need to say some words, and some of them would be four letters, and so he went ahead and wrote some of them for us and said, read these over and over and over and over again. And learn how to talk to me. Learn the full language. Learn to be fluent. And so i grow up. Don't be a three-year-old anymore. Some of you are thinking, ah, yes, but that's the Old Testament, right? You know Michael loves the Old Testament. It's like, no, we're New Testament saints now. Garbage. Remember Paul who said, who said, all things work together for good. Do you know what he said in the chapter before that? Woe to me. Woe to me. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Do you know what he said just before all things work together for good? I am groaning. My spirit groans. The spirit groans. You know what he said right after all things work together for the good? He quoted this psalm. We are like sheep for the slaughter. And when he wraps up that tower of praise that he builds the entire chapter of chapter 8 in Romans, the very next words in chapter 9 are, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. And why? Because it looks like God's promises to Israel have failed. The language of lament is a native tongue for Paul, unlike for us. And in Revelation, even the saints who have been killed who are in heaven. Watch me now. I'm about to blow your minds. Even the saints who are in heaven, who are in glory with Jesus. This is what Revelation 6 says some of them are saying. Then they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? The consistent testimony of Scripture. It's that you can't talk to God right unless sometimes you shout at Him. Unless you've got the words to wrestle with and rage at Him. And that holds true from Jacob and Abraham all the way to the saints in heaven. This side of His kingdom come, His will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Language is an essential part of the language of what it means to be a Christian. This is who we are. This is how we talk. If we don't talk this way, if we never talk this way, if the only emotional and, and, and verbal responses that we have to God are only thanksgiving and praise or, or, and only thanksgiving and gratitude, it is not because we are mature Christians. It was because we are immature ones. If in deep, painful suffering you never have, how long, O oh Lord, rise up. It's not because you're holier than the saints. It's not because you're smarter than the words that God has given you to address them to you. It's because you and I are immature. And we're speaking three-year-old language. And those are good words. And we need those words. But they ain't the only ones we need. We need to learn this language if we want to be in relationship with this kind of God as this kind of people in this kind of world. The first thing we learn is from Psalm 44 is that we need the language. We need language to wrestle with and rage at God. But second, Psalm 44 teaches us that to fail to learn this language is deadly. Psalm 44 teaches us that to fail to learn this language is deadly. 
And this is so because the end of lament, the end of complaint, is the end of real faith and hope. The end of psalms like Psalm 44 is the end of real faith and hope. If we cannot and do not and will not bring the full weight of our pain and our experience before God, wrestling with him individually and together, then we betray the fact that we believe lies about ourselves and lies about God. You see, if we don't have words of complaint and lament, we're forced to believe lies about ourselves. Either we ignore that there's painful and difficult stuff and we stuff it down deep and we say, no, 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 God is good all the time. You can't say, hallelujah, and we stuff and we stuff and we stuff. And pretty soon we're out of touch with some of our deepest feelings. And you don't have to, you don't have to pay money to go to a therapist like I do to know that stuffing your feelings all the time ends with a false view of you and an unhealthy view of you. Right? And you either ignore and pretend or you believe lies. And you say, I deserve this, all of this. This is mine. I deserve, I did this. This is my fault. This depression is my fault. This doubt is my fault. I'm the only one to blame for this. I must not be overthinking. I must be garbage. Because you don't have words to say, God, all this has happened to me even though I have been faithful. Because you can't speak psalmese like the psalmist can. And we believe false things about God. Because if you can't bring you to God, at the end of the day, it's because you don't believe in him. Or at least you don't believe in this God. You might believe in an idol who wants your false words so he can falsely give you nice things, but you don't believe in the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. You don't believe in the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To believe in that God, we need words to complain. We need words to rage. Because we betray when we don't that we do not believe that God is big enough or good enough to handle it. The end of my relationship with my wife is when I start thinking, you just can't say thoughts like that to her. I just can't tell her things like that. She just can't see that part of me. That is the long, slow death of a relationship. And so it is with God. And we prove, if, if, if lament is saying, if lament is saying, God, you are the one who appears to walk out, you to have walked out of this relationship. When we lament, we declare to God, and I'm not going anywhere. If the lament is a husband and a wife shouting at each other across the kitchen table, it's not only saying, why are you walking out that door, God? The fact that it's a prayer the fact that it shouted to the Lord is the way that we say we're not going anywhere because we have nowhere else to go. See, laments, cries of pain and grief are not, are not cries uh, 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 that show our lack of faith, but they demonstrate our faith because they are shouted to the one who we are complaining to. When I talk about my wife, my wife, so, you know, I'm leaving the relationship. When I say, Rebecca, stop! Look what you're doing to me! I'm declaring that there is nothing more important to me than this relationship and that I'm not going anywhere. And when the people of God come together and say, where are you, Lord? It's our way of saying, we're getting in the ring with you. You want us to wrestle with you? Here we are. We're not going anywhere. You will listen. We're staying here at the kitchen table with you. And if we can't have faith like that, it's because suddenly we've stopped believing. 
we've steadily started to walk out of the kitchen too. And I think, um, Rebecca, can you give me some water? I think that two examples of this failure. Oh, I got some? Never mind. Thank you. Um, can we strike that from the recording? Can you cut that out? Um, now, there's two ways I want to talk about this morning that we see this deadliness of our failure to lament. And we could talk about a lot. You know, the laments give us language to rage at God about all sorts of things. The sin that we actually do have, we're given laments for that when it is our fault. We're given laments for when we're sick, when we have personal enemies or whatever. But these are corporate laments. These are not like something's bad happening to me. These are, look at all of us. We're all getting beat up here, right? So I want to talk about two places where our failure to lament corporately is killing us. And one of those places is simply the crisis of faith. You see, as many of you know firsthand and are living every day, for a variety of us, for a variety of reasons, faith can feel impossible. Not spirituality. People in our world know all about spirituality. We're comfortable with spirituality. But faith in this God who's given us this word, who's called us to this people, that just seems impossible sometimes. And many of you and many of our fellow brothers and sisters in the West right now find clinging to belief in this God, find faith in this God to be just brutally difficult. And at the heart of so much of that challenge to belief is some version of the world is just so messed up. Either in my life or out there, it's just broken beyond words. The corporate laments teach us that God's answers to these doubts is not to squish them by saying you shouldn't ask questions like that or to solve them by giving us some sort of faith algorithm that can give us all our answers, but rather to give us words with which to wrestle with him in our doubts. God says, when you have doubts, that's the time to get in the ring with me. When you have doubts, that's the time when I want to hear from you. When you feel like faith is, is impossible, that is the moment where you should be shouting at me. And if you're having trouble thinking of how to do that, let me give you some psalms. Let me give you some scripts to name your doubt and your fears to me. Too often we avoid the hardness of unbelief. We have doubts and we just squish them, right? I'm not supposed to think that way. Squish them, right? And then one day we wake up and find out that we don't believe in God at all anymore because we haven't corporately lamented how difficult, how frankly unbelievable it can all seem at times with God and with one another. Or we say, man, this thing is just, this faith thing is just, I just, I need to kind of, I need to kind of create some separation. I need to like stop going to church for a little bit. I need to stop reading so many Bible books. I need to set my radio to something. I need to just like clear my, I need some kind of neutral space. I need some kind of neutral space where I can sort of reason things out and decide if I really believe in this way. And God says, when you do that, you've already walked out of the kitchen table. You've already left. The only way to work out that faith with me, the only way to work out that, that doubt with me is to rage with me in the ring. It's to use the words that I've given you to shout at me. That's the moment when, the moment that I say in my relationship with Rebecca, I just don't know if I'm supposed to be married anymore. I just need to go on a retreat. I need to go on vacation by myself and see if I'm still committed to this whole thing. The marriage is dead on arrival. The way that you know that there's hope 
is I sit at the table and say, no, no, this is not how it's going to be. Right? And the Psalms gives us words to do that with God over our doubts. If you are here this morning and you are facing serious doubt, this is the solution that God gives you. The bad news is, in the mysterious world that God has given us, in the mysterious ways of the God that we do not understand, God cannot or chooses not to solve all of our problems by just showing us the answers. And we could talk for hours about why we think that might be. Or we can take the prescription that he's given us, which is when we're in doubt, when we're struggling, to use the words that he's given us to rage with him and occasionally at him and to wrestle with him and bring all of who we are and all of who we feel and all of what we think to the table with our God. And, and can I just say that when I have doubts and I do have doubts, that it's this, this is one of the things that keeps me hanging in there. You know, sometimes when you read like snarky atheists or you watch their YouTube videos, it's like, can you believe people suffer? New news, God can't be good. Like they've just uncovered some problem that nobody ever thought of. <laughs> 3,000 years ago, in little tiny villages all over the ancient Near East, in a world of grinding poverty and war and suffering and disease, people said, our God is good all the way down. And our God is merciful all the way down. And our God has called him to say, where are you? Why are you asleep? Wake up. Why don't you show up? Iron Age Israelites living in peasant villages knew what Richard Dawkins has failed to recognize. Injustice and oppression and pain have always made faith difficult. And the answer has always been a people who have First Amendment rights given by God to speak their truth to him and speak the fullness of their feelings in their hearts and say, I'm not going anywhere. To say with Peter, you hold the words of eternal life to where shall we go? And the existence of this community that, 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 has, that has survived all of the pain and all the oppression and all the suffering and still says the ridiculous absurdity that God is all loving and all good and infinitely bigger than us and then helps us yell at him is part of what helps me know and believe that I can keep on keeping on, that I can have faith in this God, that this marriage isn't dead. And remember, brothers and sisters, these are the words that you're given when your friends are struggling too. Some of you are like, I'm not struggling with my faith. Your friends are though. And so often what we do is you're given like that trite, you just gotta believe, you just gotta have faith. You know, given that trite stuff, it's like, you know, at best three-year-old language, or we ignore it because it makes us so uncomfortable. Ooh, I don't want to get close to that. I don't want to be near all that doubt. Oh, that makes me, ah, I'm afraid of that. God says, no, when your friends are in doubt, you pick up these psalms and you sing them with them, for them. You use this language to carry your friends to Jesus. You to believe for them when they can't believe for themselves. To rage with God on their behalf. To get in the ring for them. Another place where our failure to corporately lament risks killing us is in the experience of racial trauma that so many of our African-American brothers and sisters feel. Uh, we all know, if you've been here long enough, you know, we think that this has been a, a racist society all the way back. I mean, you hear it every week, the trauma and the pain and the disaster that has been, among others, black-white relations on this soil, right? 
And that creates deep trauma that I am alien to. That's not my emotional story. I don't know that from the inside. And so what I want to do is I want to read to you an extensive selection from an email conversation that I had with a very, very dear friend, an African-American woman from a different city, um, in the aftermath of uh, Trayvon Martin and Tamir Rice both being killed, two young black men, one by a civilian, one by a police officer. And this is what she said to me. I think you have it on the screen so you can read with me. Um, this is what she said. She said, I'm grieving, crying in the car on the way to work. That's been a reality in 2015. Black people have known for centuries that police brutality, racial profiling, hate crimes happen. But I do believe that collectively, the ability that social media gives us to be all eyewitnesses to these things in real time causes us to experience a new level of trauma. Add to that the ability that constant news cycles allows us to hear all the ignorant, insensitive responses, a recipe for some serious emotional damage. Personally, I have the added new rising level of horror watching all these things unfold as I raise a son. A beautiful black boy who looks less like a child and more like an adolescent all the time. The sick, sinking feeling when my husband and I have to school him in 2015 on how to handle himself in, a pu in public in very much the same way that my grandfather was schooled in the 30s and my dad was schooled in the 50s and my husband was schooled in the 80s. Will he be telling my grandson the same thing in the mid-2030s? Tamir Rice and Trayvon Martin drove home for me that all my Ivy League education, church-going, middle-class neighborhood living can't change the fact that being in the wrong place at the wrong time, and God forbid with the wrong attitude, can still son send my son home to me in a pine box before he reaches age 20. I could be Mamie Till, Sabrina Fulton, or Samaria Rice someday. My husband and I literally had an argument in the fall of 2011 when David was in your kindergarten about what in kindergarten about whether it was okay to let him wear a hooded sweatshirt to school because he hates coats. My husband was adamant that it didn't matter how little David was or if the other white kids wore them, people would see him as a troublemaker if he got used to dressing like that. By February 2012, Trayvon's hoodie was all over the news and I realized that my son's grace period of innocence was done by age six. Now those words from a dear sister in Christ come from a sister who knows what it is to lament and cry out and rage with God about the trauma of being a black mother in racist America in 2015. But what's not in that email was the pain that she expressed to me about being a part of a church, a multiracial church like ours, that did not know how to lament these things, that did not give space for the full vent of pain and trauma, of being a mother trying to raise a black boy in 2015. When I feebly said to her, when she said, why aren't there names in our services? Why aren't these traumas named? And I said, you know, I think I hear you. I think, you know, sometimes we're just afraid. We don't want things to get political. And she said, Michael, I don't want that either. But I know your church talked about 9-11, and this is my community's 9-11. And it's absent. See, my sister comes from a tradition that wrote songs like, Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Oh, my Lord, sometimes I feel like a motherless child. Then I get down on my knees and pray. But our tradition has silenced the voice of lament and has ignored the expression of pain, not least 
the place of pain, the wound that bleeds most visibly among us when we try to gather as black and white folk together. So to my black and brown brothers and sisters, my message to you is that Psalm 44 not only invites you, but gives you language with which to rage at him over the absurdity of our racist society. God gives you a script to use with him, to get in the ring with him when it feels unbearable. And that it won't be healthy to live here and this place with this God unless you get comfortable with those words and that vocabulary. And to those of us who are outsiders, we need this lament too. Because this lament, these laments, are the only way that we will ever be able to stand in solidarity, mourning with those who mourn over pain that is not ours. See, Aaron Cole, who's been here a long time and she gave us that great expression, we want our guests to become our friends and our friends to become our family. You know, the other side of that story that she's told publicly, and so I don't think she'd mind repeating here, is in the aftermath of one particularly brutal death of a young black man, somebody told her, I'm so sorry for what your community is experiencing. And that expression, which was well-intended, felt deeply painful to Aaron because she said, that's not how family talks. Family doesn't say, I'm sorry for what you're going through. Family stands shoulder to shoulder and weeps for what we're going through. And the truth is, we, I cannot do that. I cannot do that. I don't know those words because I refuse to learn them from the Psalms and apply them to our story together. If we, the, 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 the road to justice and solidarity is paved with these Psalms. These Psalms are the bridge to becoming family or not. Because just like no, fam no family can be healthy for long with those first 30 words. No, no multicultural church can be family for long with nothing but reconciliation and upbeat music and the gospel is bigger. Those are good words. They're all the words we got. Stop now. Because we don't have words big enough. We haven't learned the language necessary to be the family together. But third and finally, Psalm 44 gives us words to begin the journey from petition to praise. You see, God does not invite us into the ring simply because he wants to hear our anger and pain, but because he wants to wrestle with us long enough to bless us. The last line of this psalm of lament, one of the angriest, certainly, in the entire Psalter, is, Rise up, O Lord, redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. And that word steadfast love is the last word of the psalm. But what you know if you spend enough time in the Old Testament is the first word about God. When God tells his people, who am I? What do you need to know about me when he's bringing them out of the Estes? He says, I am a God who has steadfast love. When, he, when he's about to give them the Ten Commandments, he says, I am the Lord, a gracious and merciful God, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This psalm moves from rage to the declaration that we can stay in the kitchen because this God is 
somehow beyond our perception, above what we can see, the God of the Exodus, the God of liberation, the God of healing, the God of Emmanuel, God with us. A God who is steadfast love and faithfulness all the way down and invites us into the ring because that's who he is, not despite it. And that journey from pain and rage to praise is one that the entire language of Psalms bears witness to. You see, after the introductory Psalms, three and following start out pretty bleak. The beginning of the Psalms, the beginning of the Psalter, the book of Psalms, starts out heavy on lament, but the last five are nothing but praise. And the last word of the Psalms is, let all, everything that has breath, praise the Lord. And the Lament Psalms, again and again, although not exhaustively, but almost always, even in the individual Lament Psalms, they move from the cry of pain to the declaration of hope, to the cry of praise. And sometimes that cry of praise comes from the cracked lips of someone who spent a lot of rounds in the ring with God. But learning to speak the Psalms, learning to speak the language of the Psalms, helps us get there. We do not rage and complain in the place of praise, but in order to praise. Learning this language, God teaches us against all the odds. Just like my therapist, I didn't mean to use all these uh, marriage metaphors, so my wife made them mad at me afterwards. Just like my therapist says, if you stuff it, if you don't say the truth, your best days are behind you. But if you rip off the scab, if you're honest, if you stay at the kitchen table and say what must be said, your best days are ahead of you. Not because everything will be easy, not because all your problems are solved, but because that's where life is, and there's hope in this relationship. And God gives you these words to get in the ring with him because he knows that he's the one who hears them. And he knows the truth about himself in a way that you can never know. And he knows that at the end of the match, there's him. And you might be limping like Jacob, but you have been blessed by the God who shows up in steadfast love and faithfulness. That's the praise, that's the truth, that's the hope that we want, that we can't get unless we walk the difficult road of the Psalms. And I say to those who are really struggling today, some of you are like, God, oh, I'm so glad you got to the praise part. I was really nervous. I was going to have to write Richard an email. <laughs> I know some of you are feeling that, but for some of you who, 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 for me, landing on praise felt like I pulled the rug out from under you. He said, don't give me that praise stuff yet. I'm not ready for that. I'm still in the pain. Let me remind you that this final line, rise up, O Lord, because of your steadfast love, is praise gasped out at the end. And while the entire book of the Bible tells us that all of our pain ends in praise, the individual psalms, the individual language lessons teach us that we don't always get there today. And we don't always get there tomorrow. Sometimes we get there tomorrow afternoon and we go two steps forward and three steps back and that is the life of faith and nothing else. How do we practice this? What does this mean practically? It's really simple to say, very difficult to do. I did not think that this would be my primary application point when I started preparing for this sermon a month ago, but I now know that it is the main thing, the number one thing, if you get nothing else in this, is start praying the Psalms. I don't care what you're doing. I don't care if you've got the Bible in a year. Add this in. This is the prescription. These are the language lessons. It's dangerous to try to be in a relationship with God if we don't have grown-up words. Don't leave home without it in your relationship with God. 
So pray it in the morning. Pray it at night. Pray it with your kids. When you read the language of the Psalms and they're painful and you're in a place of pain, let those words give you words. It will be uncomfortable, but pray them. And when, as often happens to me, the words are cries of pain and you don't feel that, think about who needs those words and pray them for them. Pray them for your neighbor who's sick. Pray them for our Chinese brothers and sisters who are beaten and tortured and incarcerated for their faith. Pray them for the injustice that immigrants are facing and the fear that our neighbor... Pray them on behalf of those who aren't present but who need these words too. Pray them, pray them, pray them. Learn to speak this way. And then when you hear yourself talking about God, ask yourself, am I speaking psalmies? Am I speaking three-year-old stuff? And then figure out how to speak psalmies everywhere you go. Some of you lead worship. Some of you, hopefully lots of you are involved with singing around your table with your families or your roommates. Find songs of lament. Find songs of complaint. I'll put some on the realm this week to help you get started. But don't give the people who you lead in praise only words for praise. Or they'll never get there. When you counsel people, meditate, meditate, meditate on God works all things together for good. But also meditate, meditate, meditate on why, oh Lord, do you sleep? And learn how to let the Spirit know who needs what when. If you're a native English speaker, you know how to talk differently to your mom than to your boss. And you know when to talk to your boss one way and when to write to your mother another way. You know the rules. You just do them. If we learn to speak Psalmese when we encounter pain, we'll know what to do. If we don't, we don't. So learn the language and speak it to your friends in pain. When you teach the Bible, don't tell people half-truths with your whole lies. Whether that's your kids or whatever, give them, give them the good stuff, which is often the bad stuff. It's not particularly complicated to say. It would change my life a lot to do. Brothers and sisters, the final validation of, wit, of, the, of, the, of lament is Jesus himself. See, the story of Scripture says that when lament became unbearable, when the cries to God became absolutely too much, God sent His Son to be God in the flesh for us, God with us. And when God became man, He had words of anger and pain and rage with His Father. The book of Hebrews describes His earthly ministry this way. In the days of His flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. When you lament, you lament with God himself who laments with you in the garden of his suffering, who laments with you on the cross that died for your sins, where he died for your sins. The final validation of your pain is God coming into the mix, literally into the ring, God with us, suffering with his people weeping over Jerusalem and now groaning with us by his spirit. That's the God we worship. That's the God you're invited to meet if you don't know him this morning. So what I want to do as we end is to try to do it. To try to pray together. To try to lament together. So this is not something that we normally do, but I have got us a prayer, a prayer of response up above on the screen, I will lead the parts and then you will have parts to say, like we always do at the beginning of the service. And then we're gonna leave some gaps. 
Gaps for you to pray prayers of pain and lament for yourself or for your neighbors. And if you can't pray them out loud, pray them in the quietness of your heart. And if you'll feel comfortable speaking them out loud, speak them out loud for us so that together we can learn this language to wrestle with our God. Oh God, we have heard with our ears. Our fathers have told us what deeds you performed in the days of old. Your word gives us words to remember your faith, past faithfulness. And so we call out publicly here and now in the quiet of our own hearts, declarations of that past faithfulness. Lord, we pray and believe that you have been faithful to us in the past. But now for many, Lord Christ, your face feels hidden and our hearts cry out together. Where are you, God, in the sickness and death that rages in our world? Why do you let your church suffer poverty, injustice, racism, and violence? Do you hide yourself from those whose faith right now is feeble? Your word gives us words, O oh God, to shout our pain to you. And so we call out publicly, here and now, and in the quiet of our own hearts, our sufferings and the sufferings of our brothers and sisters. In the midst of our pain, we call out to you together as those who mourn and as those who mourn with those who mourn. Rise up, come to our help. Redeem us for the sake of your steadfast love. For the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning, new every morning. Great is your faithfulness, O Lord. O Lord Jesus, who is with us in our weakness and our pain, have mercy on us, O God, and bring us peace. Amen. As we move to worship God with our gifts and our offerings, we express our faith in the one who is big enough and strong enough and good enough to get all of us. And as we do that, if you are a community group leader or a pastor here, please come forward. We're going to be right up here at front. And if you need to meet this God who wants to be in the ring with you, or if you need help lamenting to this God who's in the ring with you, come and be prayed for.